0: I was talking to a guy at a party, an older man, and this guy's opinionated and very charming. And we're talking about politics, and the guy gets on that he's a communist, an actual member of the actual Communist Party. So how's it going? I ask him. The cause of world communism. And he talks about the media not giving communism a fair shake, and he pulls out a pamphlet that he gives me for some talk that a fellow traveler is giving. I ask him about the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. Didn't that put a kind of damper on the whole worldwide movement. And he said what communists have been saying for decades, really, that the Soviet Union's not real communism, that no one's tried real communism the way that it's supposed to be tried. And suddenly I felt like I was talking to a time traveler, to somebody for whom the last few decades had not occurred or simply didn't matter. Marcel Elfield spent years making movies about Nazis, The Sorrow and the Pity, Memory of Justice. His family was Jewish, escaped Germany before the war. What's it like spending so much time interviewing Nazis, he was asked once. Oh, I get along with Nazis, he said. We share something in common, an interest in the past. I share more with them than I do with most people today, who don't care about the past. Nearly a decade ago, I had a chance to interview the members of a band called Camper Van Beethoven. At that time, they were one of my favorite bands, but I sort of... I blew my interview with them because I misunderstood them and their music, so... Grossly, I was, I was out of touch. I will just say that right now. They were playing um, a kind of country folk mixed with surfer music, mixed with the sort of fake Egyptian Russian music, whatever else kind of came to mind, ska. They openly sang about drug use. And this was before our culture, before we as a people had coined the words slacker or Gen X. And I spent a lot of that interview alienating the guys in this band by asking, were they hippies? Were they modern-day hippies? That was the only phrase I had in my head to refer to what I was seeing. I thought they were stuck in the wrong decade. But in fact, they were just carrying a few props from another decade into the present. Which is, in fact, what I think we all do. Walk down Michigan Avenue or State Street or Wabash here in Chicago, and you'll see older guys in wide-brimmed hats from the 50s coming out of the off-track betting. There are the Art Institute students dressed in that fake 70s thing we've been suffering through as a nation for the last three years. We all carry pieces of the past, some of us more than others. Which brings us to today's radio program. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it is This American Life, Amara Glass. Today on our program, people stuck in another decade. Act one, the wedding game, two people who love 1970s television and how it affects their engagement and their wedding, Act two, stuck as a teenager, two people who get suspended in time as adolescents for very different reasons. Act three, perv walk, two smart, funny, 90s men who have no problem working with women or seeing women as their equals. And why? They spend 10 minutes a day walking around scoping women and talking about them like they were Jack Lemmon in some 1950s movie. Act four, working in another decade, in which our intrepid correspondent takes a job at Mount Vernon, George Washington's plantation home, doing a job they politely call field hand. Act 5. Nostalgia, the final frontier. Someone who is stuck in a decade that is as far back as you can possibly go. Back in the day, before back in the day. The day when all matter in the universe existed in a single point in space. You remember then. Stay with us. Eck one, the winning game. One common way, perhaps the most common way these days, that people get stuck in other decades is that they get stuck in the TV shows of other decades. Consider, please, this extreme case example. Carl began his life with the normal excessive relationship that most of us have with television. As a child, he watched six or seven hours a day. Wendy went even further. She actually watched TV to see herself. As a kid growing up in Chicago, she appeared in commercials that were shot here. For McDonald's, for Sears, for Kellogg's. She was even in a Morris the Cat commercial. Wendy knows Morris the Cat.
1: I worked with Morris, and they actually showed my face, which was the first time for something like that. Do
2: you have a speaking part?
1: Yeah, I had a line. It was, oh, already? And Carl says he knows the commercial. <laughs> I
2: remember that. I love that spot. I think that's so cute. Do it, do it the right way,
1: though. Do it was, it. no, the mother would say, Morris, time for din And I went, oh, already? <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. Years of watching The Dick Van Dyke Show and That Girl and old game shows gave Wendy these kinds of skills. Carl says that once he turned on an episode of The Mary Tyler Moore Show for five seconds, turned off the TV, and asked Wendy to identify the episode and tell him the plot. She described everything that would happen, scene by scene. And this turns out to be a marketable job skill.
1: It was for a a station in Chicago that was launching... And they were going to run old shows. And I got the job by writing scripts for promos based on episodes and lines I remembered. So I didn't even have to see the shows and I could write scripts for them. So I, you know, I grew up in the, I grew up inside the television. And I just kind of wanted to stay there. Like Mike TV on Willy Wonka. That's me.
2: And I always wanted to be there. I would watch Zoom and all the shows with kids and just want to be there so bad I could taste it. That's why I watched a lot of TV. I just wanted to do it.
0: So, so many people like, you know, 70s era TV, but, but uh, the two of you have taken it further throughout the entire courtship process. Carl, can I just ask you to explain very briefly how you chose to propose to Wendy?
2: Sure. Um, well, you know, one of the reasons that Wendy said that she liked me was that I could recite the lines from a song that was on the Jetsons called Eep Op Ork Ah uh-uh, Ah, and that means I love you. So when it came time to actually get engaged, I thought, well, maybe I could use something that relates to television to do it. And I was watching an episode of The Flintstones, and um, it was the episode where Barney buys a ring for Betty, and he gives it to Fred and says, could you please hide this for me? So Fred hides it in his bowling ball, and Wilma finds it and thinks that it's her ring. So Wendy and I love to bowl, and I thought, well, I'll hide it in her bowling ball, and we'll go bowling.
1: I knew exactly what he was doing when I found the ring in the bag. I knew what he was referring to because the whole day he had bought this Flintstone CD, like music from the show, and he was playing it throughout the day and acting very strangely. And I obviously didn't know what was going on, but it all came together when I pulled the ring out of the bowling bag.
0: And you, and you saw the ring in the bowling bag and you just know, oh, he's doing the Flintstones episode.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: We're so weird. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But all of this was just prelude, just the hors d'oeuvre, just the 30-second promo that leads up to the very special episode of Whatever that all came before
2: Carl and Wendy's wedding. The Invitation was a great big TV set, and in the the middle it said, this is not a test, folks. Wendy and Carl T. are actually getting married. Dinner, dancing, and must-see matrimony is what we called it.
3: (laughs) ¶¶
0: Whatever this may sound like, it's Carl and Wendy's wedding video. They staged the ceremony as a TV game show.
4: We're going to ask ten questions, and they're going to have to reach uh, 100 points in order to get married here tonight. Uh, And, uh, Karen, where are you, Karen?
5: Here I am, Judge.
4: Who is our first contestant?
5: Well, Judge, we have from Vista, California...
2: Well, it was very simple. Wendy the night before, and everybody can't believe that we did this the night before, we asked each other a series of questions that we had to answer on cards, much like they do on the newlywed game. And we didn't tell each other what, we, what, what our answers were going to be. And then we gave the judge, who was going to marry us, who's a great guy, um, we gave him the questions, and he was to ask us these questions. And we were going to answer truthfully and see if we could get enough points to get married.
4: Anyway, uh, and which one are you, Wendy? I
1: am, oh, is this on? Wendy, Wendy.
2: And tell me something about yourself.
1: I'm a housewife, and uh... <laughs> so, You know, we both knew that it was going to be funny, so we didn't even need to rig it or set it up because I just knew that whatever he put down or what I put down was going to make it entertaining, and I thought the element of suspense was also really good, so we didn't cheat at all. I didn't know what he was saying, and he didn't know what I was saying, and so it was totally played legitimately.
2: Now we did plan to, like, do poorly, but I think we did more poorly than I expected.
1: <laughs> yeah, there are a couple things I thought for sure we would have gotten right, we didn't.
2: Ooh, whipping along here. We're going to question number
4: six. Carol, complete this sentence. Uh, my fiance is great, but her blank leaves something to be
2: desired. Carol,
4: answer. What do you think he would
2: say? Well, you know, I there's so many things that are great about Wendy. Way to go. And I love her dearly. Way to go. But her temper leaves something to be desired sometimes. Every once in
0: a while. No
2: way. What do you
4: say?
1: What?
4: He says temper.
1: All right, well, I thought about that question, and um, this is what I thought I need to improve on.
2: Algebra.
1: (laughs) Algebra. How how could you miss that?
4: How did did you overlook that? I don't
2: know. We we actually talked about
0: that. I have to say also one of the things that's so odd is that at most weddings you never see people have any kind of discord.
1: Yeah. My dream, my dream would have been that we were just failing miserably, which oddly enough happened, and that everybody thought we weren't going to be able to get married. And the last question was just a truly impossible question that we both had to get right in order to get married. And there were some people who, who didn't think we were going to pull it off. There were some people who thought we weren't going to make it.
0: I find that, I mean, I've only seen the videotape of this, but, but I find it hard to believe that,
2: that people would believe that. Well, you know, I, I thought it was going to be hard to believe too, but I looked at people's faces. And they were really, well, what are we going to do? What are you going to do now?
1: <laughs> oh, they totally believed it. There are people who came up to me and they said, I didn't think you guys were going to make it, and I thought it was just going to be a big party and nothing else. Where are we at? Uh, we're well, still at 20, Judge.
4: Holding a 20.
0: Uh-oh. Um, another, another unusual moment in your ceremony that, that is certainly not, not very traditional in a wedding is that, is that you talk about the bathroom.
1: <laughs> what did we, I don't remember this. What are you talking about?
4: Who spends more time in the bathroom? Carl. Uh Wendy. Wendy, I'd say that too. Wendy, what do you say?
6: Absolutely, Carl. Carl, okay.
4: Oh, Wait a minute.
1: If you saw his bathroom and you saw how much cleaner it is than mine, you'd know he spent more time in there, at least cleaning. That's good,
2: Carl. Yes, but if you saw all the crossword puzzles and books that were in her bathroom, you know...
0: You know, th- th- it's definitely like, you know, an image that, that doesn't come up in many winning ceremonies.
1: <laughs> I don't know. So what are you saying? It's like this toilet taboo. It shouldn't have been mentioned. It was just I'm just
0: pointing out the facts. Look, I'm just I'm just being factual about what happened and what was traditional and what wasn't. That's there, all I'm interested in saying.
1: There was only one question about our sex life, you know, sort of
4: name the movie title that best describes your love life.
2: Okay. All right.
1: Go ahead first. You go.
2: I said best friends. Best friends. Oh. Burt Reynolds, Goldie Hawn.
4: Burt Reynolds, Goldie Hawn. And Wendy?
1: Gone with the wind.
4: <laughs> well, that's gone with the ten points, too. So you're supposed to hit it. Right.
1: We've been together eight years. I mean, you know. Right. My main concern was that it was funny. That's all I cared about. As long as we got laughs, I was happy. So I answered questions that I knew would hopefully get laughs, and luckily they did. But I didn't care about, I wasn't nervous. I didn't care about marrying, you know, the wrong guy. I knew I was with the right guy, and I knew I was in the right place. So all I really cared about was the entertainment value of the game portion of the evening, really. That's all I thought about.
2: And the producer in me, was worried that it was going too slowly, that he wasn't getting the right camera angles, and, you know, oh, yeah, the the questions, yeah, I'm not worried about that. But it's it was the show part and that people were having a good time.
1: Yeah, I wish we had more cameras, actually. That would be good. But you buy the hair stuff and the cleaning stuff and the moisturizer you buy. me. So we're going mi- to have to move this along. Okay. You've got
4: to get
2: married. Come
1: on. Okay. Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe
0: not. That's
4: true. This is true.
0: When I heard what you were doing, I mean, there was a part of me where it was just like, wow, they are amazing. And there was a part of me which is just like, are they nuts? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what what would be amazing about it? What would be nuts about it?
0: Well, because because a wedding at some point, I mean, I think it has to be about... about um, Love about this, you know, but just about this feeling between the two of you, you know, and and the, the context of you know your typical game show doesn't
2: usually make the space for that. Right. I mean, I've been to some weddings, some of our friends, and I just thought they were beautiful and romantic, and I thought, wow, I would love to do that. But I also thought that that really wasn't us. I mean, it's yeah. not how we we deal with each other. Not that we're not romantic and love each other, but we just express it in a different way.
1: You know, I've, I, I've been to some weddings that really sucked. I mean, you know, I mean, come on. There have been some totally lame-ass weddings at a banquet hall in, you know, Lamont, Illinois, or Joliet.
2: They go on for an hour and a half. Yeah,
1: and, and... You know, people think they're romantic, and they're just boring. So, any you know, anyone could, you know... Anyone could do what it takes to, quote, unquote, have a romantic wedding. It's just like making soup. You know, you have the right ingredients. You throw in the flowers. You throw in the dress. You throw in someone playing a song from Fiddler on the Roof or whatever. You just, you know, and you throw in essential in
0: any wedding for my family. Well, yeah. yeah. It's like
1: you throw in all the usual crap, and that's supposed to be romantic. Well, that's, you know, that's not true. And nobody, I don't think anybody really said, people actually said to me, this is exactly the wedding I thought you would have. And that, to me, says everything right there.
2: Was it romantic at all? I think the most romantic part, and and maybe it wasn't for the audience, but for me and maybe for us, it was very romantic during the actual ceremony itself when the judge um, broke it all down to what it was really all about. Um, when he said that the fact that we had found each other was a miracle. I mean, it is unusual that two very different people found each other through the the biggest medium in the world, which is television. And um, it brought us together and it brought a whole bunch of people that we love together that um, wouldn't normally know each other.
1: I don't think you could say that there's a traditional romance. I mean, this is, to make it romantic is kind of to do what you want to do and to do what means the most to you. And I think we achieved that. So for me, it was very romantic because it's what we wanted to do.
4: Yeah, I was, I...
2: The most romantic moment was just standing there when we were looking in, in each other's eyes.
1: You know what, I actually wanted to tell the judge to stop. I just wanted to tell him to stop, and I just wanted to stand there for a minute, just frozen, just, just remembering that moment, because mm-hmm. it was all going by too quickly. And I, just, I, and I knew we were going to run out of videotape, so I didn't do that.
4: Remember this moment in time. Before this moment, you have been many things to one another, <clears throat> acquaintance, friend, companion, lover, dancing partner, and even teacher because you've learned much from one another in the time you've known each other. Now you're going to say a few words that are going to take you across the threshold of life and things will never be quite the same between you.
0: Do you feel like doing a wedding like this purges 70s TV out of you? Oh, no, I think it kind of reinforces it.
1: What do you think, it's like an exorcism? We need to get it out of our bodies. <laughs> well, sort of like
0: once you've been on the newlywed game, you never need to think about it again in a certain way.
1: So if your theory holds true, then people who have a romantic wedding never need to be romantic again.
4: Do you, Carl, take Wendy to be your wife? To love and to cherish, to honor and to comfort, in sadness or in joy, in hardship or in ease, to have and to hold from this day forth? I do. And to you, Wendy, take Carl to be your husband, to love and to cherish, to honor, to comfort, to sadness, or in joy, in hardship or in ease, to have and to hold from this day forth?
1: Absolutely.
4: Okay. I hope Karen's keeping score.
1: I'm actually developing a show right now that's similar to what we did at our wedding. And so it was kind of a trial run. The wedding was uh, for the show I'm developing. In fact, the uh, judge who married us, who's a real judge, and I have been putting together this show because he would be the perfect host for a show like this, and I've kind of created a format for it, and uh, I would love to be able to produce it. it. would just I think it would go really well.
0: Basically, it would be in sort of the vague ballpark of what you guys actually did. Would people actually end up married?
1: Yeah, people would end up married at the end of the show. And
0: is it possible that people might not get married?
1: Uh,
2: yeah.
1: this <laughs> ring. <laughs> wow. So there goes another idea that someone's going to make a million dollars off of.
2: We did it first.
1: Well, I, the bottom line is I've got the guy who'd be perfect for it. And, you know, without him, this, you know, this is a real live judge who also happens to be a comedy writer. So he's perfect.
2: Okay, honey, you're selling.
1: I'm sorry. You're selling.
0: <laughs> Carl T. Wright and Wendy Miller work in television in Los Angeles. You can see Carlin about a month on ER the November 6th episode.
2: I I get to stand up and say, I'm uh, Dr. Norris, uh, director of St. Joseph's ER.
0: And that is the most cheerful music I think we have ever put on this radio show. Act 2, Stuck as a Teenager. This is our program about being stuck in the wrong decade, and it is a truism among addicts and alcoholics that the year that you start using or start drinking is the year that you stay stuck at. So if you start using drugs at 15 in a very heavy way, in 1974, let's say, if you continue until you're 40 and you stop, you'll find yourself 40 years old but still stuck at the emotional age of 15. Which brings us to Michael Stump.
7: Had an embarrassing moment um, not so long ago. I was at a, a, a theatrical benefit, and and there was a, a friend of mine, and we had uh, um, done the, the the adult thing of trying to get together and meet, and 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 we hadn't really gotten it right. Um, she was teaching and busy, and and we just couldn't get together. Now I'm I'm forty three years old, and and I know the proper way to behave is to um, just shrug it off, but I um, see her, however. At this event, and I'm suddenly and inexplicably filled with rage. This feeling comes over me. I have a seizure. Okay, now here's my behavior post-seizure. I see her. I'm filled with rage. She's hurt my feelings. I'm going to show her. Now, here's how I do this. Tactic number one. Whenever we're both in the same room together, I let her see me, and then I walk out. Here's tactic number two. She walks up and uh, attempts to have a conversation with me. I grip my club soda a little tighter, say nothing, cast my eyes downward, purse my lips, walk over and start a conversation with someone that I know she admires. I, um started drinking when I was oh, 13. Um, I started smoking pot and using speed um, somewhere around age 15. And uh, I started uh, using heroin um, at age 24. By age 25, 26, I was uh, an intravenous um, junkie. And remained so until age 40 when I stopped. So back to this event for just a moment. I would step outside occasionally to smoke a cigarette, and um, the 43-year-old that I am was mortified by my behavior. I, I, adults don't do these kinds of things. Adults do not handle intrapersonal relationships and, or, 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 or something as simple as not being able to keep a date like this. 15-year-olds do especially really poorly adjusted, drug-addicted 15-year-olds. So I'm standing outside smoking a cigarette, thinking, God, Michael, what are you doing?
0: Darlene went to prison when she was 17, came out in her early 30s. She says it was like being frozen in time. There was a way of dealing with other adults, as an adult, that she never learned. Shortly after she was released, she went to get a state ID, and it was intimidating.
3: They're moving people along, and you should have out the proper um, pieces of paper for this particular person and then swiftly move to the next place or whatever. And I really didn't know where to go. So anyway, I had to come back, and the guy was like, you go around there and, you know, go around, go down the hall to the left and make a left and blah, blah, blah. And so then I got in this other line, and the guy was saying to me um, that my birth certificate was not the original. And, you know, someone else just probably would have, you know, I don't know, been more assertive, been more confident, more sure of themselves in that kind of situation. And I was like, just, I didn't even know what to do. Uh, what And I kept saying, no, it is, no, it it is. Well, anyway, I got out of that line, and my mom was waiting for me on the side. And I think by the time I got through the doors, I just remember I was in tears. And she kept saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? I, said, I just want to go home, I just want to go home. And you just want to kind of run and hide and cringe because, again, it's one of those situations where, by all appearances, you look like an adult, and you should be able to, you know, maneuver your way through this, handle this situation. And, you know, so anyway, it took me about, I think, three days to work up the courage to come back.
7: Let's look at my record collection, shall we? In fact, let's look at it twice. Let's look at it once in 1979, the year I started using, and again in 1997. Okay, here's a A partial reconstruction, a a list. Uh, Last night I sat down at the kitchen table and I made a list of as many records as I could remember of, of my record collection in 1979. Beggar's Banquet, The Rolling Stones. Candles in the Rain, Melanie. Raw Power, Iggy and the Stooges. The first two Modern Lover's Records. The Ramones' first record, Something Else by the Kinks. The Village Green Preservation Society by the Kinks. Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan. Highway 61, Revisited, Bob Dylan, of course, the Velvet's third record, um, the eponymously named Velvet Underground, um, Blank Generation by the Voidoids, and Leonard Cohen, Songs of Love and Hate. Um, I brought my record collection today in to the studio so we can look at it here. Let me just unpack several of them. Nobody plays records. Anymore, and neither do I, but I have cassette tapes and um, CDs. Okay. And um, here we go. Between the Buttons, The Rolling Stones, um, Candles in the Rain, Melanie, Raw Power, The Stooges, the first three Modern Lover's Records, Ramone's first record, um, Something Else by the Kinks, uh, Village Green Preservation Society, The Kinks, uh, Blonde on Blonde, Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited, Bob Dylan, The Velvet's third record, Blank Generation, Voidoids, um, and Leonard Cohen, Songs of Love and Hate. Um, I suppose if I had any sense at all, I'd be embarrassed. But I don't, so I won't. Besides, I like Melanie. I do. I think she's cool.
3: Another thing that happened was, I remember I was going for a job interview, and the company, um, or rather the department, the woman had me come first for the interview with her, and that went pretty well. No big surprises there. But then she wanted me to come back for a second interview with the other people within that department I would be working with, and they decided to make it a lunch interview. And so we went to one of these places where you kind of, you pay and you get a buffet thing, you could well, that was new to me, I didn't even know these places existed, so They're of course being courteous and putting me first to go through the line and I'm like no I really can't go first here because I don't know you know the lady the the cashier had to give me the tray because I was just totally at a loss if she picked up that I didn't really understand how to conduct myself in that environment uh I don't know because because I don't think those kind of things really um you know average day people think about that you know well will the ex-offender know how to use the you know how to come to Old Country Buffet and, you know, carry on. I don't, I don't think so. It's just not something you really think about.
7: I have a car. Did I mention that? I, I have a car, and I know how to drive. Two months ago, I did not have a car, and I did not know how to drive. I love my car. I'm 43 years old. I'm driving for the first time in my life. And I love my car, I'm 16 again. Or, to say it another way, I'm the 16 I never was when I was 16 and refused to drive for whatever pig-headed, stubborn, and childish reasons I had stuck in my head. You see, driving is a metaphor for me. It's the marker I use to check the progress I make on this adult planet that I inhabit now. It's another place. It's a parallel world where I can move freely with ease and grace, and it's that one adult behavior I perform these days with some authority and command. When I'm driving... I do something I never, ever did as a junkie. I engage. I engage with the world around me in a very real, hands-on, and practical way. And call me screwy, but I like it. I like that car a lot. In fact, when I'm done here, I'm going to drive home in it. And I'm going to listen to a hopelessly out-of-date cassette tape in it, too. Bye-bye.
3: One, two, three, four,
7: five, six...
0: Well, coming up, stuck in the pre-feminist decades, stuck in the pre-emancipation decades, and stuck in the decades before time and space and decades even existed. That's in a minute for Public Radio International, when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme and invite a variety of writers and performers to tackle that theme. Today's program, Stuck in Another Decade, stories of people living in various pasts, as we all do, to one extent or another. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, the story of two men who live most of their lives in a white-collar America where men and women are supposed to work and interact as equals. But 10 minutes a day, several days a week, they retreat to a different America, Uh, A quick warning to listeners before uh, we hear this story. There are no nasty words or explicit deeds in this story, but it is a story that acknowledges the existence of sex and the fact that men are not always nice. Sarah Miller is a magazine writer in New York.
5: This is a story about two people. One is my friend and one is my acquaintance. Both are relatively highly placed editors at glossy New York magazines, the sort of magazines you might have on your coffee table or have read waiting to get your hair cut. My friend let's call him Raj, is so charming that the first time I met him in his office, we started talking and I literally couldn't bring myself to leave. He was funny and stylish in that slightly homosexual New York way. Asked his opinion about something, he's as likely to reply, it's very Altamont meets Sotheby's, as to really tell you what he thinks. The last time I had lunch with him, he said, don't you wish people could only communicate using proper nouns in the names of medieval diseases? I've heard that his wife is lovely, but I have to admit that I'm a little sad he's married. One afternoon, I called Roger at work. We gossiped. He told me a funny story about basically hanging up on an interview subject, a famous pop star who had bored him. Then he said he had to go, that a friend of his, an acquaintance of mine, also a magazine editor, was meeting him downstairs. We're just going on a perv walk, he said. Perv walk, I said. What the hell is that? Weeks later, I sat him down at a cafe on Green Street and made him explain on tape. It turns out that a perv walk is exactly what it sounds like. Raj and his friend Bill meet a couple times a week and walk around Soho, commenting on the women that they see. Who came up with the name perv walk? My colleague. Your colleague? I
8: used the term and I felt its it's quality of rightness instantly, truly as a perv walk. And you can use it as a verb also. You can go into, say, a place like um, Banana Republic and perv broads, because they tend to hang out in Banana Republic. So one can go on a perv walk or one can go perving. And what can simply perv.
5: The fact that Raj went on perv walks didn't make me hate him. Not at all. In fact, for several days, I'd be on the subway, taking a shower, eating dinner, and I would just start laughing. If I were with people, I might explain. I'm sorry, it's just that I know these two guys. Well, actually, I only know one of them well, but as far as I can tell, they're these perfectly nice, very sweet, interesting guys, and they do this thing where they walk around Soho and talk about women, and they call it a perv walk. Some people looked at me blankly, Some used the word disgusting. Was there something wrong with me? I thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. I made Raj do a demonstration for me.
8: Take a look at the tube top. Three o'clock. Tube tops are underrated, you know? I'd like to see, like, a return to tube tops someday.
5: I guess I should explain the voice. Raj grew up in Queens, Bill, in northwest Chicago. Two working-class neighborhoods in different parts of the country, but both, as Bill pointed out, near airports, and both home to a remarkably similar cast of characters. As they became better friends and learned more about each other, Raj and Bill started to get the idea that their neighborhoods, though a thousand miles apart, were actually the same neighborhood. Now they both work white-collar jobs, but when they purr, Bill told me, they become guys from the neighborhood.
8: It's people like we've heard all our lives, you know, and uh, it's just, I, I mean, I've worked with people like that. One can't really talk seriously about tube-tops without taking on a certain persona.
5: I know that some of you, many of you, maybe even all of you, find this disturbing. You don't find the idea of two men walking around saying lewd things about women funny. You find it juvenile, reactionary, a throwback to a time when it was permissible for a man to say almost anything to almost any woman at any time just because he could. But I don't agree. First, let me tell you why this is not horrible. None of the women they're looking at has any idea that these guys are talking about them. They never approach or touch anyone. It's not about cat calling or looking for reaction. They're just doing it for each other. They were even reluctant to do it with me there. But I did manage to talk them into letting me record a 15 minute perv walk.
8: See that henna chick? You like that henna stuff? You know, unnatural hair color. Open mind, free thinking, experimental, oh, check out this like chick with a guitar and a beret, artsy type, right? You know what that means? Abuse.
5: It was so different from what I had imagined, maybe it was a function of my being there but they barely talked about actual body parts, in fact they barely looked at the women they were talking about. They only looked long enough to find some distinguishing characteristic that they could riff on.
8: We just saw a broad who was lost. Want to give her directions, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. You know which way he showed her to go? North, you know what I'm saying? Like my magnetic compass, you know what I'm saying?
5: Let's walk, gentlemen. Hey, this is the North Pole. Let me describe for you this person who's talking about his North Pole. He's wearing one of those bright blue shirts that The Gap has turned into this year's urban uniform. He's shy-looking, bookish, and wearing little round glasses. Raj describes both of them as limp-wristed pencil jockeys. We keep walking. We pass a woman going into a post office.
8: I'll teach you about postage. I'll stamp your letter, huh? Why don't you come in back and lick the postage, and we can apply it. You know what I'm saying? I'll weigh your package. Like, uh, maybe you'd like to see a mailing tube?
5: Both of these guys work with women. They report to and have women co-workers, and there's no problem there. I asked Raj if they go out on perv walks because they're not permitted to say these pervy things about women at work, and he said that was part of it. They're using fake names here on the radio because they don't want anyone at their magazines to know that they do this. And there are enough blue-shirt-wearing, gay-looking straight men parading the halls of the New York publishing world that I'm confident they'll retain their anonymity. They don't wish work was different. They don't wish they were back in a time where every day at work could be a perv walk. But they don't want to stop perving either. So they do it, as Raj says, with silence, exile, and cunning. A 10 minute jaunt into a little world where they can pretend that the last 30 years haven't happened.
8: Who's gonna edit this stuff anyway? So... Uh,
5: my friend Nancy. she sure, a babe? I guess what fascinates me most about the perv walk is that it's a perfect distillation of something I see in men all the time. Here, Raj and Bill, in character, of course, are speculating on the physical attributes of a woman they've never even seen—a woman who's just the idea of a woman—and then they start flirting with her into the tape recorder.
8: Hey, Nancy. And then her name is Nancy, anyway. What is that like, uh, Latin? <laughs> <laughs> she the one with the red hair. Mm. Hey, like a burning bush. I would enjoy such a thing.
5: This reminded me of the times in my life where I'd gotten a wrong number and a man had answered. Oh, wrong number, I'd say, and go to hang up, and suddenly the guy says, hey, are you hot? And it's not just strangers. My male friends do this to me all the time. I'll be telling a story about a friend, that she just moved to a new neighborhood, that she's writing a dissertation on French critiques of Dutch genre painting in the 19th century, and suddenly they'll need to know right now Does she have a nice body? The last 30 years have done their damnedest to clean up men's mouths, and in some cases, in some contexts, it has succeeded. But even these guys, these hyper-educated, fully modern, and slightly nerdy guys, need their 10-minute perv fix. And that, to me, seems harmless.
0: Sarah Miller in New York. Act 4, Nostalgia, The Final Frontier. In this program about people stuck in the wrong decade, we bring you out a story about somebody stuck as far back as anybody can possibly go. This is a story from Italo Calvino's amazing little book, Cosmic Comics. It begins with this little scientific explanation. Through the calculations begun by Edwin P. Hubble on the galaxy's velocity of recession, we can now establish the moment when all the universe's matter was concentrated in a single point before it began to
6: expand in space. And after that, our story begins. Naturally, we were all there. Where else could we have been? Nobody knew then that there could be space or time either. What use did we have for time packed in there like sardines? I say packed like sardines using a literary image. In reality, there wasn't even space to pack us into. Every point of each of us coincided with every point of each of the others in a single point, which was where we all were. In fact, we didn't even bother one another except for personality differences. Because when space doesn't exist, having somebody unpleasant like Mr. Pabur Pabur underfoot all the time is the most irritating thing. How many of us were there? Oh, I was never able to figure that out, not even approximately. To make a count, we would have had to move apart, at least a little, and instead we all occupied the same point. Contrary to what you might think, it wasn't the sort of situation that encourages sociability. I know, for example, that in other periods, neighbors called on one another, but there, because of the fact that we were all neighbors, nobody even said good morning or good evening to anybody else. In the end, each of us associated only with a limited number of acquaintances. The ones I remember most are Mrs. Fink, her friend DeZwao, a family of immigrants by the name of Zazu, and Mr. Pabur Pabur, whom I just mentioned. There was also a cleaning woman, maintenance staff she was called, only one for the whole universe, since there was so little room. To tell the truth, she had nothing to do all day long, not even dusting. Inside one point, not even a grain of dust can enter. So she spent all her time gossiping and complaining. Just with the people I've already named, it would have been overcrowded. But you have to add all the stuff we had to keep piled up in there. All the material it was to serve afterwards to form the universe, now dismantled and concentrated in such a way that you weren't able to tell what was later to become part of astronomy, like the Nebula of Andromeda, from what was assigned to geography, the Vosges, for example, or to chemistry, like certain beryllium isotopes. And on top of that, we were always bumping against the Zazu family's household goods, camp beds, mattresses, baskets. These Zazus, if you weren't careful, with the excuse that they were a large family, would begin to act as if they were the only ones in the world. They even wanted to hang lines across our point to dry their washing. But the others had also wronged the Zazu's to begin with by calling them immigrants, on the pretext that, since the others had been there first, the Zazu's had come later. This was mere unfounded prejudice. That seems obvious to me, because neither before nor after existed, nor any place to immigrate from. But there were those who insisted that the concept of immigrant could be understood in the abstract, outside of space and time. It was what you might call a narrow-minded attitude, our outlook at that time. Very petty. The fault of the environment in which we had been reared. An attitude that basically has remained in all of us, mind you. Keeps cropping up even today. If two of us happen to meet at the bus stop, in a movie house, at an international dentist's convention, and start reminiscing about the old days, we say hello. At times somebody recognizes me. At other times I recognize somebody. And we probably start asking about this one and that one, even if each remembers only a few of those remembered by the others. And so we start in again on the old disputes, the slanders, the denigrations, until somebody mentions Mrs. Fink. Every conversation finally gets around to her. Then all of a sudden the pettiness is put aside, and we feel uplifted, filled with a blissful, generous emotion. Mrs. Fink the only one that none of us has forgotten and that we all regret. Where has she ended up? I have long since stopped looking for her, Mrs. Fink, her bosom, her thighs, her orange dressing gown. We'll never meet her again in this system of galaxies or in any other. Let me make one thing clear. This theory that the universe, after having reached an extremity of rarefaction, will be condensed again, has never convinced me. And yet many of us are counting only on that, continually making plans for the time when we'll all be back there again. Last month, I went into the bar here on the corner. And whom did I see? Mr. Pabur Pabur. What's new with you? How do you happen to be in this neighborhood? I learned that he's the agent for a plastics firm in Pavia. He's the same as ever, with his silver tooth, his loud suspenders... When we go back there, he said to me in a whisper, the thing we have to make sure of is this. This time, certain people remain out. You know what I mean? Those zoos. I would have liked to answer him by saying, I've heard a number of people make the same remark, concluding, You know who I mean, Mr. bur To avoid the subject, I hastened to say, What about Mrs. Fink? Do you think we'll find her back there again? "'Ah, yes, she, by all means,' he said, turning purple. "'For all of us, the hope of returning to that point means, above all, "'the hope of being once more with Mrs. Fink. "'This applies even to me, though I don't believe in it. "'And in that bar, as always happens, we fell to talking about her, and were moved. "'Even Mr. Puberpuber's unpleasantness faded in the face of that memory.' Mrs. Fink's great secret is that she never aroused any jealousy among us, or any gossip either. The fact that she went to bed with her friend, Mr. de was well known. But in a point, if there's a bed, it takes up the whole point. So it isn't a question of going to bed, but of being there, because anybody in the point is also in the bed. Consequently, it was inevitable that she should be in bed also with each of us. If she had been another person, there's no telling all the things that would have been said about her. It was the cleaning woman who always started the slander, and the others didn't have to be coaxed to imitate her. On the subject of the Zazu family, for a change, the horrible things we had to hear. Father, daughters, brothers, sisters, mother, aunts. Nobody showed any hesitation, even before the most sinister insinuation. But with her, it was different. The happiness I derived from her was the joy of being concealed. Punctiform, in her, and of protecting her. Punctiform, in me. It was at the same time vicious contemplation, thanks to the promiscuity of the punctiform convergence of all of us in her, and also chastity, given her punctiform impenetrability. In short, what more could I ask? And all of this, which was true of me, was also true for each of the others, and for her. She contained and was contained with equal happiness, and she welcomed us and loved us and inhabited all equally. We got along so well altogether, so well that something extraordinary was bound to happen. It was enough for her to say, at a certain moment, Oh, if I only had some room, how I'd like to make some noodles for you boys. And in that moment, we all thought of the space that her round arms would occupy, moving backward and forward with a rolling pin over the dough, her bosom leaning over the great mound of flour and eggs which cluttered the wide board while her arms kneaded and kneaded, white and shiny with oil up to the elbows. We thought of the space that the flour would occupy, and the wheat for the flour, and the fields to raise the wheat, and the mountains from which the water would flow to irrigate the fields, and the grazing lands for the herds of calves that would give their meat for the sauce, of the space it would take for the sun to arrive with its rays to ripen the wheat, of the space for the sun to condense from the clouds of stellar gases and burn, of the quantities of stars and galaxies and galactic masses in flight through space which would be needed to hold suspended every galaxy, every nebula, every sun, every planet. And at the same time we thought of it, this space was inevitably being formed. At the same time that Mrs. Fink was uttering those words, Ah, what noodles, boys! the point that contained her and all of us was expanding in a halo of distance in light years and light centuries and billions of light millennia and we were being hurled to the four corners of the universe mr bubberbur all the way to pavia and she dissolved into i don't know what kind of energy light heat she mrs fink she who in the midst of our closed petty world had been capable of a generous impulse boys the noodles i would make for you A true outburst of general love, initiating at the same moment the concept of space, and properly speaking, space itself, and time, and universal gravitation, and the gravitating universe, making possible billions and billions of suns, and of planets, and fields of wheat, and Mrs. Finks, scattered through the continents of the planets, kneading with flowery, oil-shiny, generous arms, and she lost at that very moment. And we, mourning her loss.
0: Well, at one point, the middle of Calvino's book, Cosmic Comics, read for us by Jeff Dorchin. Well, our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder, senior editor Paul Tuff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rocklin, and consigliere Sarah Val. production help from Alex Bloomberg and Rachel Howard. Special thanks today to Rick Carr, John Connor, Steve Cushing, the Safer Foundation, Rabbi Scheinman, and Gail Smith. To buy a cassette of this program, call us at WBEZ in Chicago, 312. 832-3380. 832-3380. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our programs has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine D. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International.